Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Hi, this is Cheryl, and I'm with Kirsten, and welcome to the Feathered Desert. This podcast is about desert pollinators. And we're going to go right in and talk about uh, bees, native bees. Woo. So bees comprise a large, a hugely large, diverse group of insects. Arizona deserts are thought to be the host to more kinds of bees than anywhere else in the world. But maybe Israel, which I found interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. The Sonoran Desert bees range in size from the world's smallest bee, the little fairy bee, to the second largest in uh, the U.S., the carpenter bee. So because of this diversity in bees, it's easier to share with you the differences between our most familiar bees and the European honeybee, which actually is not native. It was brought over with um, the earliest uh, settlers. So uh, honeybees are light tan to dark brown. And the honeybees have striped torpedo-shaped abdomens. Honeybees have light brown hair on their bodies or thorax. And honeybees dangle their legs below them when they fly. If you don't see any of these characteristics, then it's most likely a native bee you are looking at. Now, Kirsten is going to share some cool facts about native bees in our desert valley, including giving us the top seven natives to look for. Yes. I'm really excited about this one because a lot of people overlook the native bee. Yes. So many yes. people just think that there really is the honeybee and that's the only bee that's out there. But there are lots of native bees that are on our continent. So one of the cool things about our native bees is that they actually burrow into the ground to create their nests. And they will also use hollow, pithy, dried stems of plants. And they will also use abandoned tunnels left by boring beetles. So these are not bees that are making a big giant hive. You're not gonna have, if you wanna attract them to your yard, which we'll tell you how to do, you're not gonna have a big old hive in your front yard. You're gonna have just one little bee, two little bees down there um, laying some eggs and that's it. Most bees are herbivores, uh, except for the parasitic bee, which is nobody's friend. Um, <laughs> but they, they prey on other bees and what they do is they lay their eggs uh, near other bees' eggs and they will hatch before them and they'll eat those eggs. So there's a whole cannibalistic type parasitic thing going on there. And they're called the cuckoo bee. And that relates to birds because cuckoos are often I, parasitic I that, nesters. I yeah. So, um, so uh, our herbivorous bees will feed on pollen, nectar, and then the oils that are offered um, from flowers. And the flowers offer them as a reward for the bee's behavior. So the flowers are all like, look at me, I'm pretty, I have some pollen. And the bee doesn't know that what he's doing is actually pollinating the flower for the plant. So most bees uh, are native bees that have solitary lives in which the females act alone to construct and care for their nests. So once again, if you end up wanting to attract these to your yard, which we'll tell you how to do, and we're very excited that you want to do that, uh, you're not gonna attract a whole hive of them. You're attracting one or two. Uh, social bees are the ones that are very familiar to us though, like the honeybee or our yellow and black bumblebees. But most of our native bees here are gonna be individual females. And only females have a stinger. 
A lot of you probably didn't know that. But it's actually a modified ovipositor. Yeah. That's what the stinger is. And the native bees are really non-stingers. They're not even going to bother you. They're very small. They do their business. They leave you alone. But they're not also protecting a hive. So they're just like, don't step on me. Don't squish me with your fingers. And we'll get along just fine. So some of our native bees. We do have top seven of them that are ones that are great to bring towards your um, uh, yard. And one of the coolest ones is the leaf cutter bee. And I know Cheryl told me she actually thinks she has some in her I yard. Do, because I noticed that what's happening with my rose bush leaves. Right. There's that half circle. The half circle. And that is what gives them away. So what the leaf cutter bees do is they line the tunnels where they dig to lay their eggs with pieces of leaves. So when you look at your leaves, it's going to be a little half circle or a whole circle cut right out of that middle. And it's a circle. It's not a munch. It's an actual circle. And it's right out of their leaves. And they use that. They take it and they kind of uh, lay it around to make it nice and comfortable for their eggs. And then they will lay an egg and then they will wall that off after they've put a little bit of pollen down in there with it and they collect pollen and carry it on the underside of their abdomen so they don't have the little baskets like you see the honeybees on the sides of their legs they have it on their abdomen uh, the leaf cutter is also a solitary bee and it does nest in beetle holes in wood or in the soil so that's the leaf cutter bee look for the circles in the leaf then there are a number of bees called mason bees and a lot of our native bees fall into that mason bees and they're very good at pollinating fruit trees excellent they're actually better than honeybees at pollinating fruit trees because they'll go a farther distance and they'll go to different trees back and forth and honeybees tend to focus just right on one tree uh, these bees are so good at what they do they are also known as orchard bees and uh, there is one called the Blue Orchard Bee, or Bob for short. I thought that was really cute. That is cute. <laughs> and the Blue Orchard Bee actually carries pollen on their belly, just like the Leafcutter Bee. And they nest in holes. And these are the ones that are extremely easy for us to offer man-made nests for. So when they're actually building their nests, these um, they don't use leaves the same way that the leaf cutters do. The mason bees actually use clay to make their partitions and to seal their entrance. So the unique building behavior of this particular type of bee, the blue orchard bee, is uh, why they're called a type of mason bee because masons build things and they're building with, stuff with clay. With clay, with yes. yes. So blue orchard bees' uh, season is very actually early in spring. And although they are solitary, these bees do like the company of other mason bees. So you don't have to worry about the mason bees not getting along with each other. They don't mind putting their nests near each other. They're very good at only entering their own apartment. They don't go into <laughs> anybody else's house. Um, and so they don't mind being around other mason bees. Um, there's an interesting fact about the blue orchard bee actually that its first brood cell in the nest develop into females. So this is the cell that's farthest in the tunnel. Uh, the very first one that they do. Uh, I don't know how this happens. It's amazing. But the female is able to lay an egg that will mature into a female. And so once she puts her little uh, ball of pollen in there, she blocks that off with her clay and then she'll lay a few more. And then as she gets closer to the end, the opening, it becomes male eggs. I don't know how this works, but it really is truly amazing. And scientists for a long time didn't know why. Um, but we've got some hypotheses. 
Um, one, the males do need to emerge first so they can be ready to help the females make the next generation. So they need to be out and ready. Uh, and then the second one is that, of course, bees, just like everything else, do suffer predation. And one of the things is that our lovely woodpeckers that we love here, I know I love my woodpeckers, they will actually try to get into the little nest that they've made that tunnel and they'll eat out the ones that are at the front and then they can't get any farther because their beaks aren't long enough. Well, that means that they just ate up the males. And sorry guys, but the females are just a little bit more important because they're the ones that are going to make the next season's nest and they're the ones that are going to make the next season's eggs. So if we lose a couple males here and there, that's okay. They're a little expendable. Sorry guys. But that is the blue orchard bee. So another one that you guys are going to be very familiar with is the bumblebee. That's the big guy that always seems like he's like really fat. <laughs> They're a robust bee. They're about an inch long, but we don't have very many in the Sonoran Desert. So actually do see a bumblebee, then you're really getting a treat. We are losing them a lot. And that is due to um, the changes in our environment out here uh, with the heat and then with also loss of habitat. Now these guys are a social bee. They do live in social colonies and they nest underground, but not nearly the size of honeybees. We're not talking thousands of bumblebees living in one area. And these bees do prefer to pollinate open-faced flowers. So if you have something like your desert marigold or your uh, chocolate flower, they really like those open faces. Now the carpenter bee is one that you'll be aware of as well. Also robust. He's bigger than the bumblebee and they're very furry. They literally look like if you could pet them, they would be like a little furry stuffed animal. And they do live in wood. And so that's what most people dislike about the carpenter bee is they're burrowing into the side of your house sometimes. Uh, but that's all right. They're not going to dig giant, giant nests. They're just going to dig a, a, a few small tunnels to lay their eggs. And if you leave them alone, you'll help uh, next generation. The carpenter bee is referred to as the gentle giant. And in Arizona, I found this very interesting. They're usually not striped. Uh, the females are black and the males are yellow. And I have to admit the ones that I see most often are black. Yes. And now that I, I know that, that. Yeah. yeah, it seems that uh, the females are probably more out and about. They're making the nests, they're getting more of the food and everything. And so that's very interesting. This one has an unfortunate name, I think. It's called the sweat bee, but it's kind of the cutest of all of our native bees. Uh, they are small, green, and blue in color. Uh, they're semi-social to solitary nesters. And the reason they are called the sweat bee is they actually drink sweat from mammals that sweat, including humans. But these guys are so small, you probably didn't even realize it was a bee. Uh, they're very tiny. They look almost, I mean, smaller than your typical housefly. And you'll see them and you're like, oh, that's a nothing bug. I don't need to worry about it. But they're everywhere. Next time you go up to your garden when it's in full bloom, look for this little green and blue colored be and you'll be like oh my gosh they really are everywhere and that's your sweat bee so we do also have a longhorn bee i have never seen this one before i would like to see this one someday uh, but they have very long antenna for the males to track the females so the females uh antenna aren't quite as long but they have the bees uh, have the name longhorn bee uh, they are ground nesters and then these bees are attracted to specific flowers like asters sunflowers and mallows and then the other one that I don't know if we'll ever see because it's so very tiny is the fairy bee. And it is a bee that can only be found in Arizona, which makes it super special to us. And they're very, very small. 
and they are specialized to individual native flowers. So when you go out and you say, what do I want to put in my garden today? Think about this fairy bee and look for a native flowering plant of Arizona. And hopefully you'll be able to see them, very small, but uh, they're brightly colored with metallic reflections and yellow or white markings on them. They're one of the few bees that's incapable of stinging, which may be just because they're so tiny. Uh, their ovipositor probably can't even go through our little fingers. And these guys are highly parasitized by those cuckoo bees. And those bees will lay their eggs in these bees' nests, and then the cuckoo bees will hatch early and then make a meal of the poor little flower, fairy bees' eggs. But those are the seven ones to look for that are our native bees here in Arizona. And Cheryl is now going to tell us a little bit about some of the problems they are facing here. Yes, so um, bees are facing problems um, and they do so much for us that it's really important that we um, at least pay attention to the challenges they're having. So the first ha problem that native bees are having is habitat fragmentation from housing developments and agriculture and farming. Um, along with agriculture and farming, poor, poor nutrition. And the poor nutrition comes from the monoculture due to agriculture planting one type of plant at a time or at all. So when you see row, uh, fields and fields of like soybeans, well, the bees are only getting the opportunity to taste one flower or to get food from that one flower, which is the soybean. And they're not getting the, the variety, just like we need variety in our diet, they need variety in theirs. Pesticide and herbicides are another thing that's affecting um, our native bee populations and the honeybee population. Pathogens, again, that is due to poor nutrition of both the, of all of our bees, but our native bees in particular, makes them more, uh, poor nutrition makes them more susceptible to the natural pathogens that they would come across that wouldn't be a problem if they were healthier. And of course, our environment is changing. Temperatures are rising, um, which is causing um, them to have problems um, coordinating their hatching with uh, their bees hatching with the blooming seasons. And if there's no flowers, there's no food for the bees. So um, what, what do bees do for us and how can we help them? Well, all female bees, except for the cuckoo bee, <laughs> um, make their living by foraging in search of protein-rich pollen and sugary nectar from flowering plants. And by the bees moving from pollen, moving pollen around from flower to flower and plant to plant, the bees perform a vital and often unappreciated role of, as the most important group of pollinating animals on earth by pollinating the foods that we need to eat. Um, bees do not do this, as Kirsten pointed out, to help us out. They do it because that's their natural, that's how they function. That's their natural role in life. And they feed themselves and to feed their young. And we just are lucky enough to benefit. Yep. So of the approximate 640 flowering plants in our Sonoran Desert, 80% of these flowers have adapted for, which totally fascinates me, that the flower has adapted to attract and use the bee for its pollinating abilities and so that the flower can do its thing, and yeah. which is to have more flowers of that particular plant. 
um, without the pollination service of bee, that bees provide, many plants would not produce seed-laden fruits, which um, from the next generation of plants would grow. So we wouldn't have um, apples and blackberries and raspberries and right um, or the beautiful flowers that we have. So without bees, there would be, I just said this, few or fleshy berries or fruits to sustain birds, mammals, ourselves, and other wildlife. I didn't, this fascinates me, these last two things that bees do for us. The tunneling activity of bees aerates the soil and allows water from infrequent rain, rains, to which we all know about, except for yes. yesterday was like awesome. Um, infrequent rain, rains to quickly penetrate and reach plants roots and bees i didn't even i never kirsten i never occurred to me that bees actually went to the bathroom right but bees nitrogen rich poo fertilizes the soil bees themselves um, often provide food for lizards mammals birds insects spiders and other arachnids so uh, Kirsten, do you want to talk about how we are going to attract bees? Yes. To our... Okay. We can do that. And just all the things that you said there, it's amazing how many things, I'm sure people knew that bees pollinated flowers, but all the other things, they do so much for us that really they don't know that they're helping us, but we have got to make sure that we are helping them. Right. So one of the first things I want to tell you guys about is how to identify a bee versus a fly versus a wasp. Yes. And then we are going to tell you about a plant. I get to do this plant spotlight yes, this do. week uh, that will attract our native Arizona bees. So if you're out there and you're looking and you're like, I want to make sure this is a native bee or a bee at all, then what you can look for are certain things that differentiate them from a fly versus a wasp. So bees, um, all types of bees, even our little natives will have a thick, robust body and they'll be hairy. They won't be massively hairy. Not all of them are hairy. We've got our little carpenter bee um, that is pretty hairy, but they'll have some sort of hair on their body. Then you can look at them. Are they carrying pollen? They will carry pollen on their legs or their abdomen. And the flies and wasps do not do that. When they go to a plant, they're eating it. They just eat it. They're not carrying it somewhere else. Um, bees will have big eyes, but not fill their entire head. So we've all seen an up close picture of a house fly. That's like eyeballs and teeny tiny head. <laughs> but bees will have large eyes, but it won't be their entire head. And then bees will also have medium to long antenna. So if you see something with really long antenna, with the exception of our longhorn bee, then it is most likely a wasp. And then flies are like little stubbies. They don't have big long antenna at all. So those are things you want to look for. Robust body. Are they carrying pollen on their body somewhere? Are their eyes big but not enormous? And look at the size of their antenna. All right. So that's a way to find that out. Now, we want to help bees. We do. We want to do some good pollinating here. And we want to offer them something that they're really going to like. So I'm so excited to do the plant spotlight this week. And what I have done is a little bit of research on the Dahlia plucara. Now that's the scientific name. The, it is also known as the pretty Dahlia, the bush Dahlia, the Santa Catalina prairie clover. 
And this is a native to the Sonoran Desert. It is found in Arizona and New Mexico, natively in the U.S. Other states have definitely introduced it. And um, Florida actually considers it an invasive species in their state. But here we are more than happy to have as much as we can. So this one is different. A lot of our native Sonoran Desert plants are yellow or white. Mm -hmm. But this is a purple flower. So I thought it was Ooh. very exciting, a nice yeah. purple flower, and it's on a perennial shrub. And you know, for those of you who have listened before, <laughs> I'm a lazy gardener. So <laughs> if I plant it and it comes back another year, cha-ching. So this is a perennial shrub and it will bloom in the spring. So that here, that means February, March, and April. And then depending, uh, you know, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. And it does get, since it's a shrub, it does get, it can get to four to five feet high and then four to five feet in width. But it does handle some pruning, some light pruning. You don't want to prune it all to nothing, but it can handle that light pruning. So you want to have a little bit of room for it and you want to make sure that that room is in full sun or partial shade. It's water use once it is established as medium. I mean, it could handle this drought that we're having right here. But once it's been established after that first year of really growing those roots, then you don't really have to worry about watering it too often. And this one, I picked this pretty dahlia or bush dahlia because it is extremely attractive to the native bees in our area and is actually recognized by pollinator ecologists that is a thing pollinator ecologists as attracting large numbers of native bees so i liked it because it had the purple flower it was a bush and a perennial and then it attracts lots and lots of our native bees so the best thing we can do for our native bees is to plant native plants. Absolutely. Things that they're familiar with that they find out there in the desert. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is our plant spotlight for the day. And we do want to throw in one more thing. If you are interested in doing a bee house for your native bees, we do have some here at our Mesa WBU store. And please come by and we'll show you the exact what you need. And I will be putting some stuff online as well with our show notes uh, to show you a great website to go to to get the exact uh, bee house that our native bees need to come to your garden and pollinate your flowers. Yes. All right. Yes. Well, thank you guys so much. And like Cheryl said at the beginning, this is going to be a couple of different parts. This is going to be our first episode of Desert Pollinators. So keep an eye out for our next few episodes. Bye. <laughs>